Welcome back to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. We appreciate you spending time with us. This edition is made possible by CARTS, the Corporation for Automated Road Transportation Safety, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to safe and high quality mobility for all. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hey, good afternoon, Fred. Good afternoon, and joining us from Florida, fresh off of the Florida Automated Vehicle Summit, is Jeff Brandis, former state senator and certainly a leader who's made things happen in Florida. Hi, Jeff. Hey, how are you? Great to be with you. Great having you, Jeff. Thank you. Let's give the audience a bit of your background first, Jeff, uh, before we dive into the summit here. Give us the give us the, the the little bit of an overview short story here. Sure. So I have uh, right out of college, or sorry, right out of high school, I I joined the army. I joined the army seven days after high school. I spent eleven years in the military, uh, uh, and I spent in Iraq 0304 with 101st. I was a transportation officer. I then got out of the military, thought I was going to come back to work for my family business, which they promptly sold. And uh, and I ended up uh, deciding to run for office shortly thereafter, uh, won my first election by just under a thousand votes and was part of a very talented class where I had to figure out how to kind of how to how to rise into the to the ranks of this really talented class. And I had this idea that there was one big idea in every area of policy, and I wanted to find that. So I had to find a way to quickly go through and find areas of public policy and learn a lot of this stuff uh, as a freshman. And so I started watching TED Talks. It was about a four-hour drive from my house in St. Petersburg to Tallahassee. And so I would listen to TED Talks the entire way up and the entire way back. And hundreds and hundreds of TED Talks I got through before I came across Sebastian Thrun's discussion on self-driving cars. And I recognized that this was a big idea. And so I uh, called Google up uh, because they were essentially the only people in the business at the time and said, hey, I I really want to do self-driving cars. And they said, no, Um, called them back three weeks later and said, hey, this I think this is the big idea. I can't find a bigger idea in transportation policy than this. Um, And I said, so I'm going to do a a piece of legislation on it. And I'm sorry if I screw it up. But, uh, you know, that's you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going forward. They called back three days later and they offered me uh, full access to their team. They brought the vehicles down twice. Uh, I met all of their engineers and their their attorneys that were working on this. And we crafted what was some of the earliest legislation in the country as it relates to the future of mobility. And from there, we've now done four iterations of that within during my tenure in the legislature. Uh, so Florida has some of the most you know, forward-thinking legislation, frankly, in the country as it relates to uh, self-driving vehicles and automation. Uh, in between that time and kind of when I left, we brought in Uber and Lyft to Florida. That was a four-year battle to get that all squared away. All the e-bikes, all the scooter legislation, we worked on that, all the platooning. So so really, I have, over the last, you know, 12 years, really been working predominantly on transportation policy uh, and making sure Florida is as, as forward thinking as we can be uh, in as we kind of drive towards this unknown future. But really our focus as a policy group has been how, you know, how would, how should we regulate this policy? Interestingly, when I was in Iraq, I read this book called Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. And I kind of asked the question to myself, how would Milton Friedman regulate automated vehicles? And so I kind of took that tact and, and asked that question as I drafted the legislation for Florida. And so I think what he would have done and what Florida did is to use insurance as a regulator model. 
because what I recognize is no bureaucrat, no politician wants to have to declare a certain vehicle safe. Frankly, states are very ill-equipped at this anyways. You know, they, they, they aren't really used to looking at code. They aren't, they aren't looking at, you know, especially as these individuals and these companies, they update their code sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes hourly uh, during testing. And so nobody wants to have to declare these vehicles safe. So who can declare these vehicles safe or can at least have the skin in the game to ensure and it has uh, is, has their interest aligned to ensure that these vehicles are safely operating on the road. And to me, that's the insurer. And so while, you know, while, first of all, I believe for most of these companies, a serious accident is a death nail to their company. Two, as somebody who is, is involved in the political world, I need to ensure that people are made whole if they are injured by one of these, by one of these companies. And so that's where insurance comes into play. And so we have created this insurance as a regulator model, which the beauty of it is one, it's evergreen, and two, it's incredibly simple. So if you can act, if you can get the amount of insurance required in the state of Florida to operate one of these vehicles by a carrier that meets the state of Florida's guidelines, then you can operate a vehicle in Florida. You don't have to go through the licensing. You don't have to go through all the crazy stuff that California puts through. through. Uh, you can operate. And that's why companies have flocked to Florida and are testing in Florida today uh, and, and why we've seen so much growth in Florida. Yes, it's weather, um, it's regulatory environment, and it's density of population that can make sense for a business model. Is the technology yet being used, do you think, to provide, as, as Alan has been pushing for, societal good, really providing some return? What, what are you seeing down there using that approach? Well, I think the, that let me kind of rephrase that question because I think where we the question really is where do we see self-driving vehicles operating first? What what domains do we see them in? And I really think there's three kind of operational domains. Um, one would be the agriculture and mining operations. I think those we're quickly seeing John Deere acquiring Bear Flag and, and and a variety of different companies kind of coming together, and the automation probably will first be seen among anywhere in that mining space and in the agriculture space. So that's one space where I think- Away from public roads, basically, too. Correct, correct, right? Because the operational domain is much simpler in those areas uh, than everywhere else. And they can provide a ton of value. Two, I think you're gonna see it in port operations. I mean, essentially the reason that we don't automate our ports today, at least in part, is because the the, the stevedores and the, the unions that operate in the port operations area really push back on that. In fact, last year, I tried to do a, a automated vehicle summit really with those three kind of areas in mind, trucking, I'm sorry, with, with long haul trucking, port operations and, uh, and agriculture. And I couldn't find anybody from the ports that was willing to talk on the record about this because of their concern over the unions. So I think port operations will be the second place. And finally, I think you're going to see it in long haul trucking. So those are the th three things that I think the three areas are, I think you'll see it within the next few years, probably two or three years um, at scale. Um, and then kind of where we talk about robo-taxi and robo-delivery of products uh, at scale, I think those are a little bit farther towards the end of the decade. So this was the 10th annual Florida Automated Vehicle Summit. Uh, Alan was down there too. Uh, we can talk about some of the highlights and Alan, of course, was one of those, I'm sure. So let's let's talk. No, about the highlight it. is right here. I mean, the highlight <laughs> is Jeff. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the 
what your focus was on this year. I know there were, you know, quite a few panels. Give us the give the overview. Well, I mean, I think the important thing is let's take a retrospective back of 10 years and then let's look forward 10 years. And so that's what we really tried to do. We talked to the futurists from Ford about how to how to think about the future. Uh, we talked to Brad Templeton, uh, who always provides a lot of color and and really uh, and really challenges leaders to think about how to design. And so what I asked Brad to do was think about you know what we what we should be talking to states and and engineers about uh, about how they design their infrastructure. And I think one of his key points, and one of the things I thought was so kind of brilliant about what he what he was talked about was, you know, Brad really talks about how the internet is stupid. And that's part of its success. And that most of the, the, the things happening on the internet are happening on the edges, right? In the different servers. But the internet itself is fairly stupid. He says, you know, we should think about our road networks in a very similar way. Like most of the things that are going to happen are going to happen on the edges, but the infrastructure itself needs to be stupid. So don't put a lot of effort and time and energy into V to V, V to X, all these other things, because you know what? Your smartphone today is a great V to X device. Um, and uh, and so how should we think about, you know, states should be thinking about how do we make this infrastructure work for everybody and keep it as stupid as possible, but allow operators to, to, to utilize it. And, and let's begin to do the things that really help everybody not uh, and not try to say, well, we need dedicated lanes. We need to spend billions of dollars on dedicated lanes, or we need DRSRC on every single um, on every single stoplight. Well, I think some of those things would, you know, uh, well, I think some of those things are interesting ideas, and we should definitely be piloting them. I think the overall theme is improve this the the infrastructure that's existing. Make sure your lane lines are there. Make sure your marked your your marks are done well, uh, because the the these trucking companies and the robo-taxi companies, they're going to be designing a virtual road on top of you anyways. Um, and what they really need is access to the information from the state. And, and But knowing that the information that you guys have on these roads is accurate is really important. Yeah, Brad did a, a really fantastic job. And, and I, I don't know if, if you taped it. If you did, I, I'd like you to share the tape or, and, uh, so that we or you can distribute it because he really did a fantastic job in, in his presentation. And, and this concept, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's one that, that I try to teach in the classroom all the time. If I look at, at a fundamental of transportation, what I think is a fundamental of transportation is that the way what the the thing operates on tend, has to be simple. Right. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. I mean, we wouldn't have if we would have to have air do a bunch of funny things to keep your airplane or airplanes up in the air. I mean, it wouldn't work. Right. OK, the, the fact that we happen to have Bernoulli and airflow and low pressure and high pressure and a thing pops up and all that stuff. Oh, my goodness. Then we can put the intelligence in the vehicles and the terminals and so on and, and use that. You look at, at water transportation, my goodness, all you have to do is a, a buoy, I mean, you know, float <laughs> in, in a sense. But, but again, you know, that makes it. And, and, and you know, I've, I've been involved in trying to automate transportation again for <laughs> since 1970, okay? And, uh, you know, that's an awful long time ago. 
and and at one point in my life, you know, we were going to do automated people mover. We did automated people movers. We did like three of them. One of them still exists in Jacksonville. And we heard from, from Mr. Ford how, you know, it, it needs some, it needs some, um, um, uh, it's getting a little old. Well, I think but it, has, it has operated, okay? Yes. <laughs> and certainly if we want to put in the technology and we could afford the technology for exclusive roadways, we can do this. The problem is, where's that going to come from? I mean, it's just like, whatever, cut it out. And that's that's the reason, I mean, the, the great revelation of the, of the DARPA challenges was was when the military said out there go out there and do it and and basically you you have no infrastructure and dirt roads or whatever but just don't crash into things that that was the the oh my goodness moment that said oh let's put all the, the intelligence in the vehicle then we can maybe do a, a, a steve jobs things of get a garage get it to work in one vehicle and then replicate the sucker, which really is a, has been Google's concept from the beginning. You know, right. they said, geez, let's let's put a ton of effort into just getting one vehicle to work and then replicate. Right. Which I mean, and, and we're at that point. So and Brad uh, said it very well and brought and really brought it home, that fundamental concept, which is kind of where we are today. You know, we've. I think we're, we've gotten to a point where where really the vehicles are getting to be pretty darn good, and uh, now we just have to find the places where we can start to really show that they can deliver at least in in some places some return. Mm-hmm. And you pointed out a very important one is agriculture the the amount of vehicle miles traveled over farms across the country to create food for us is like enormous. And so there, that opportunity, I mean, John Deere has been pursuing it now, you know, at least 10 years, more than that. And I'm, I would imagine it's, it's, you know, it's really there and the mining you mentioned, I've always thought, my goodness, the railroad should be there too. I mean, what the heck? I mean, they they have the the uh, more intelligent infrastructure. They have two rails that basically, you know, keep you from going off into the uh, whatever. Which they do the lateral control pretty darn well, and the headway control shouldn't be that tough. But you know, I don't I don't know how we get to that when we need some changes and some regulations. But anyway. Yeah, I think uh, to your point, I think I look, there are a lot of areas where I think, you know, automation is going to was going to it should be showing up. Um, uh, but ultimately, government keeps it from showing up. Um, and I think that's one of the struggles we we kind of haven't gotten really to yet is when we start really talking about, all right, why are we keeping our ports unautomated? Um, and what else are we going to do in that space? And, you know, I, I think you know, the truckers unions are going to push back on trucking being automation at scale. And so I think you're going to see some of this interplay between government and automation. It's going to have to happen. Um, but ultimately, I think, as we've seen, you know, generally automation will eventually win. The yeah, great thing it, is, we, we, you know, the, the, the timeline, you know, the timeline is is quickly approaching for that conversation to begin. One of the places where it really has one is in tolling. 
Right. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I can recall when when we first brought on tolling and you know the discussion was, you know, my goodness, all the toll takers are gonna have a fit and nobody's gonna use it. And and we're at the point at which I realized that, oh my goodness, this is an absolute no-brainer that's actually going to happen is when the New York City cabbies uh, bought the uh, got the easy pass tags and put them onto their uh, cabs. So, I mean, if if those folks are not going to adopt this, this thing is going to go gangbusters, right? right. And, and 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 it has. And and yes, it, I think it just this past yeah. week they did away with the toll booths at the Lincoln Tunnel or the, in, the, in the crossings in New York City. Yeah, and in a sense, I mean, we even had a slight off offline discussion about whether or not you actually need a you know a, a, a gizmo in your car. My car has a license plate on it. There are license plate readers that are as efficient as any electromagnetic reader or whatever. You know, um, the, the New Jersey Turnpike can read my license plate and hit my Easy Pass account. They don't have to send me now a bill da da do da da do da da da. I mean, and, and is hitting my 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 license plate any different than now? You know, I can go kind of fake some sort of thing with a with a with a gizmo, or I can paint some other letters on my on my license plate if I really want to misbehave out here. But come on, that's that's 0.001 of the of the population and come on i mean this this yeah, should think, be easy right yeah i think that's where we're going right we 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 you know we took out the toll takers and now we we've now we're taking out the the uh the chips that you know because why do we need the battery why the battery goes down we've got to go out and replace well, it it takes time right. we've got license plates I mean, I, I I got from Delaware River Port Authority, uh, whatever, two fines because they didn't read my Easy Pass thing because who knows what, and you know, argued with a fine and sent them the money. But you know, uh, I really want. I have a license plate, right? Aren't it? And and that that I need to have that to, so that I I I follow the rules and if i don't you know then you know then i'm made to pay that's fine jeff let me ask you this uh, if you take a look at the state of things today and you've mentioned where where things are actually really taking place what are your thoughts about uh, the technology policy what needs to be done in places like new jersey and elsewhere to have this meaningful deployment that we talk about? Well, I think, first of all, the meaningful deployment really is happening today. It's happening on farms across America. It's happening in, in mines across America, and it's going to be happening in trucking across America. And I think that's first people's first introduction to this technology is probably going to be a long haul truck that they see driving down the road. Um, I think that's you know what we're going to see probably by the end of the decade. Everybody else seems to be kind of running for the edges um, and I think, you, you know, there will be some cities where you may have some robotaxi services at scale um, that, that are operating. And I think those will grow, obviously, over time as more and more of the vehicles get developed and, and brought online. But, you know, if you're going to take on a city like, you know, Tampa Bay or Orlando or Miami, you got to come with 10,000 vehicles. And it takes a little while to produce 10,000 vehicles and to test 10,000 vehicles. And then, you know, so it's it's one of those things where it's going to take time to, to kind of move into these jurisdictions. But I think like Uber and Lyft and, you know, there may be one or two other competitors 
you know, it'll be interesting to see whether it's an OEM or whether it's a, you know, Amazon or a Google that's doing it. But I think you're going to see these cities quickly have, you know, one or two, maybe three of these services in their cities. And then, you know, how many alts do you need? Uh, maybe there'll be a very, very high end Mercedes kind of service. Uh, but I, it'll be interesting to see how ultimately this plays out. But I think as far as timing goes, you know, really by the end of the decade, I think those three areas are where we're going to see it at, you know, at scale beginning to play out. And then 2030 and beyond is really the other challenge, the other area. I always thought, you know, if when I think back on timing, I think 2010 to 2020 was really the decade of the shared economy, where we saw Uber and Lyft and Bird and all of these different modes because of the smartphone be made available to people. I think 2020 to 2030 will really be the decade of electrification. Well, we came into the decade, you know, and, and really are going to leave the decade in a radically different place with the adoption of electric vehicles. And when I think about 2030 and beyond, 2030, 2040, I really think that's the decade of automation. And so I think the interesting thing is, you know, for governments to where we're essentially from, you know, the Model T to today, things haven't changed all that much on the roads. I mean, you know, we're about to see a revolution where you're getting wave after wave of, of disruption going on in the government space or in the transportation space, and the government's having to adapt to it. Um, luckily, there's a decade in between each one of those, so they should have time to do some of that. But clearly, you know, we, we're kind of getting our arms around Uber and Lyft and, and the shared economy. You know, we're still, cities are still struggling with what to do with scooters and how to deal with e-bikes. The conversation's ongoing best left to the cities to deal with. Uh, I think the Uber and Lyft conversation is best left to the states to deal with because Uber and Lyft are much more multi-jurisdictional than a scooter or a bike. I think the long haul trucking conversation is probably something for the states to deal with in the short term and the federal government to deal with in the long term. I don't know that anybody needs to deal with the agriculture conversation um, or the mining conversation and the ports are gonna deal with their own. But I and, and politically, that's going to be a, a battle that's happening. But I think ultimately, uh, you know, we haven't seen a lot of discussion about this in Congress. I mean, you know, we would call congressional action on automated vehicles glacial if glaciers weren't moving so fast. I mean, it is, it's just amazing to see how slow they've come. But it's largely because politicians like to avoid the tough conversations until they have to happen. And I think Honestly, that was one of the things that came out from both Brad and, frankly, I would argue from Ford, the, the futurist at Ford, Cheryl Conley, as part of the discussion where they said, listen, sometimes you need to make decisions as late as possible because you don't know what lies ahead. And I think that's what's interesting. I think largely what states need to focus on right now is maximizing your options. When I don't know what lies ahead, I try to maximize my options. And I think that's very important. For, for states to think about as we drive towards this automated, connected, shared, and electric future. Well, that, that's the way I like to live my own personal life. I, I, I don't want to make decisions until I have to. I want to prepare myself. I want, I want, I want, to, I want to, uh, absolutely, it's all in preparation. And what I try to tell my students is I think you want to prepare yourself to take advantage of opportunities as they're presented to you. doesn't mean you stick your head in the sand, don't do anything. It means that you put the preparation in there, but don't lock yourself in because, because the, the beauty about the future is that it is uncertain. 
because if it was certain, we would be totally bored. Okay. I mean, it, life would not be worth living. I mean, seriously. I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, would we, we wouldn't go to a football game. We wouldn't care whether or not France, France, or who we already know who, who's going to win tomorrow morning. Okay. I mean, that's, it's almost silly to think about, about that. But we certainly prepare, but to prepare ourselves and to take advantage at some point, hey, look, this is an opportunity for us. We can do some good here. That's clear. It becomes clear. Sounds like a perfect segue to, to ask you, Jeff, about your future. Um, left office last month. The term limits were the reason for you not being in the state Senate there now. So what are, what are the kinds of things you're thinking about and, and where you were where you would like to be, whether it's politically or, or otherwise? Well, right now I'm taking kind of a pause on the political side and not running for any other offices for a while. I've got four young kids, and so we're going to let them grow up a little bit before I jump back into the, the operation of government. Um, but what I do have these is these amazing connections that I've built out over the decades, uh, last decade, and frankly, problems that I still think exist that I haven't solved yet. And I still have this passion for solving tough problems at scale. That's always been something that I've really been interested in. And so, you know, this, this, this passion for me, uh, for, for these, these challenges, um, I think is best kind of dealt with by kind of creating a nonprofit that works on, you know, I'm really interested in these best practices models, but what's the best practice in housing? Listen, I've been doing, you know, I've been doing, Tallahassee and being in the legislature for a decade, I couldn't tell you who the affordable housing expert is in, in Florida. Couldn't tell you, you know, who's the criminal justice expert. I couldn't tell you, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, I took a stab at it while I was in the legislature to be housing and transportation and property insurance. Uh, but you were very me, involved with prison reform issues. Prison too, reform, right? right. And prison reform. So, so how do I take that passion that I had for those issues and kind of build this expert network and then begin to ask really tough questions about what is the best practice? And I think the great thing about each one of those areas, and let's take prison reform or criminal justice system, criminal justice reform, is we can dive as deep or shallow into each one of these areas as we want. For example, in Florida, reentry is 50 bucks in a bus pass. You get out of prison after 10 years, we give you $50, we give you a bus pass, and we send you on your way. I don't think anybody could argue that that's the best practice. Because you're out of money in, you know, pretty quickly out of, you know, you get three or more meals at McDonald's and you're living under an overpass. Um, so how can we improve that in Florida's education system in the prison system? We have most of our prisons have 1,500 inmates and zero educators in the prison system. Part of that's because we pay $10,000 less than what the, what the local school district does for educators to operate in the prison system than this local school district. So no, you know, no wonder why people would take take a second look at that career. Um, so what can we do to improve that? Florida has a virtual school system. Uh, can we get the virtual school system to operate in the, the, the prison system? Because that seems like it would help with our education uh, in, in the prison system. So I think for me, it's the ability to, to use these expert networks that I've kind of developed on the transportation side where I've run Automated Vehicle Summit for the last decade do a summit on criminal justice and prison reform, do a summit on, uh, you know, housing affordability and how we really address that. So to me, the exciting thing is how do I, I have, you know, I'm, I'm 46 years old. I've got 12 years of experience in the legislative process, really at the highest levels in Florida. And I've built great relationships. And what I've seen from most of my colleagues is they walk away. 
you know, they, they, they walk away from that experience and maybe they, they use that and they go join a county commission or become the tax collector of their local community. But that doesn't really require the, the rich amount of resources that you have. And you have all of these individuals who are just elected, who don't know anything. They're looking for the bathrooms where, where in the Capitol. They're, they're, they're not experts in any of these areas of policy that we can help guide and shepherd and, and enter, make introductions to. It's one of the reasons I go to CES every year, take two or three legislators with me. I'm doing it this year, even though I'm not in the legislature. Why? Because they need to see this stuff. And, you know, they always ask me, well, what's the goal? What are we trying to do? I said, we're trying to expose you to people and leaders and, and let you see what the future holds so that when you go back, it's like opening the aperture of a camera and seeing what's going on out there. Because, you know, we have this myopic view of in Florida, um, whereas you can see what the rest of the world is working on. So to me, it's it's really exciting, and I'm really excited about some of the projects we're working on today. Yeah, well, so, so we're we're, we're go gonna ahead, get Jim. we're gonna get back together at CES yeah. this year, and so on, and and of course that's the same reason I go to CES is just to see what's going on, see what the bleeding edge looks like, and and so on, and 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 it it is absolutely exciting, and 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 let me let me also say that you know here in new jersey the same issues are really paramount here also uh, affordable housing is is just i mean and everywhere it's not just florida as you well know and and you know one of the one of the, of course my passion with respect with with trying to do affordable mobility is I think if we match affordable mobility with affordable housing, we do affordable living is sort of the my one liner on on that whole thing. But but that's really fundamental to, to all that. <laughs> and the prison reform. My goodness, there there was an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago about about the downward spiral you can get into if if you happen to be pulled over with a with a broken tail light, you know. If I get pulled over here in Princeton with a broken tail light, they'll say, "Oh, Professor Kornhauser, please go fix your broken tail light." And you know, did you know? Oh, thank you. And and I go on my way. But for some others, guess what? They get a ticket, and then they can't pay it, and then there's a warrant out. And then, and then a Princeton policeman sits there, reads the license plate, and gets an alert that there's a warrant out because this person got a broken taillight in Hamilton Township next door. And therefore, because of some agreement between police, she feels, you know, that she has to arrest this person. And now, not only does the person have to fix a broken taillight and pay the time, I mean, the what I mean, it, right. it is for what? Oh right. my! Look. I mean, cut it out. Right. We in Princeton or are, 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 are enforcing broken taillight, whatever in Hamilton Township. And I mean, and what does it cost us? We not we not have to have a judge to do that. I mean, it's like crazy stuff, isn't it? Well, look, you, you get your driver's license suspended because you can't pay your ticket. Now you can't go to work. And now you're making a choice. Do I go to work and violate the 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 the, the law, or do I, you know, how am I going to pay the ticket? So you're kind of left to this catch twenty two. And people make these choices where they continue to drive, and then they get pulled over. And now you're to your point, right? For many people across the country, their across first the country. Of entrance into the criminal justice system is a suspended driver's license. I mean, it, it is like 
come on. I mean, <laughs> there's there's got to be a better. There, there has. I mean, we we need to. And and of course, the worst of it is again. If it happens to me, guess what? Oh, Professor Kornhauser. Sure. sure. You know, I mean, what to do? I mean, it's like. Oh, well, it's an annoyance. How how have we gotten here? Well, but it's it's an annoyance for you and I to get a ticket. Yeah, I know, I know it is. Them, even, it's but, it's it's a monumental challenge. Absolutely, but they don't even give me a ticket. Right, for it's they, 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 because, they, because I because I'm a so oh well, a I look like a, don't I, don't I look like a professor? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it's like but terrible. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a speed bump for us. It's a brick it's wall. A, it's not even a speed bump for us. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, it's a yeah, it's a speed bump for us. It's a brick wall. Right. So. But for them, I mean, it is a downward spiral, or for others, it's a downward spiral. You can't get out of it. Right. You can't get out of it. So that we're gonna is, be looking at we're gonna be looking at suspended driver's licenses and looking at fines and fees and those types of issues as well. And what can we do to improve efficiency for that? I mean, listen, when I first got in the legislature, what I recognized was that we were suspending people's driver's licenses for unpaid tolls. And we had thousands of people. We had people who would, you know, pay their toll. I think it would go three months and then they would get their driver's license suspended again for an unpaid toll. We had people who were getting their driver's license suspended three or four times throughout, throughout the year. And to get it reinstated, it was like $150 to go back and get it reinstated. These people were spending a thousand dollars a year on toll violations and getting reinstated their driver's license, not to mention the cost of the state because some of these people were getting caught and pulled over and arrested and dragged to jail and, you know, and go through the criminal justice system. So it was insane. So we stopped that program process and we said, listen, you, you, we're not going to suspend your driver's license, but you, before you can get your car re-registered, you, you got to pay the, the, the toll. So at least that way, there was some stock, stock gap to get these tolls paid, but we weren't out suspending people's driver's license in the process. So taking away a livelihood, right? So correct, right? right? So, so now all of a sudden, we that paradigm shift has led to a bunch of other areas of policy. But for me, that's what I'm passionate about. I yeah. love solving tough problems. And listen, the, the, it's not just solving one individual problem; right. it's solving problems at scale, which is which is really what government can and should be doing but all too often fails to do it because of some special interest or, you know, somebody has another bright idea to me, build the expert network, be able to stand behind your work and, and ask questions that frankly, nobody's really asking uh, and, and try to improve the lives of, of the people that I love and my neighbors and, and, and my constituents, even though they're no longer my constituents. <laughs> well, congratulations, Jeff. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to turn to a few headlines from the latest smart driving cars yeah. newsletter. Uh, Alan, you highlight an opinion piece in the Times, uh, New York Times, headlined, once you see the truth about cars, you can't unsee it. And we're sounds like this is the topic we've been talking about. Yeah, it's the topic. It, we, we, right. We, yeah. Um, there's a line in this uh, in this editorial op-ed that, that reads, uh, for many low-income and minority Americans, automobiles have been turbo-boosted engines of inequality. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 for many of us, for most, of, thank goodness, most of us, it is a fantastic form of mobility. It's it, what it's done to the economy, for the economy, for us to be able to 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 uh, to improve our own lives. Uh, but but there are some folks that are left behind on this thing, and and and, and my goodness, again. Uh, if you're poor and you can't afford, you know, 
your car or a car or the car you afford again has a broken tail light you can't afford to fix it my goodness well beyond that you've pointed out many times on the mobility issue that where public housing projects are built typically are away from everything so that well you do yeah. need a car to, to, I mean, to yeah here in princeton we're we're where's where's uh community village our our public one of our public housing sites it's out at the end of bun drive okay and what do you have to do there's there's not a there's not a something there where you can go out and get a quart of milk you, you need a car to go get a quart of milk or you know have a long walk i mean it's it it's 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 you know and we we need to fix that we need we, we need to fix that. Well, I think the important thing and the interesting thing about that article is it's not just cars, yeah. right? Listen, you, you go, if you, you know, if, if people have bike, you know, helmet laws and it's disproportionately uh, enforced upon certain groups in certain areas as a stop and frisk model, right? Then all of a sudden you see the similar thing, right? So, so, you know, it, it's, uh, I think these these kind of stories play out in a lot of different ways, and obviously, individuals who are struggling, they are you know they've got strong headwinds. Yep. Thank you, Jeff. From the Verge, Waymo's driverless robo taxis are now doing airport trips in Phoenix. Yeah, and well, as you've pointed out before, people who are going to the airport have lots of options. They don't necessarily need a driverless vehicle. Right. I mean, it's kind of nice that, you know, I now have an, another way to get to the airport, but um, um, I, yeah, good. Okay. It's fine. Do it. But my goodness, um, you know, there are places, the opportunity to be able to provide really good mobility 24 seven, that's almost as good as having a car parked outside of your kitchen door is with this technology and to be able at to deliver it at a cost, deliver it with before subsidy that it, that is affordable, mm -hmm. and and you know, to me that's 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 the low hanging fruit on this one. Not to give me yet another way I can get to the airport and whatever. And sure, I guess I'll appreciate that it's cheaper or something or whatever or something, but. My goodness, I don't know. I'm fine. Well, I, look, I think it's. I think overall it's positive. I think. Listen, the more places we provide functionality, the better off we're going to be. I remember sure. when Oliver Cameron was running Voyage at uh, in the villages, his number one requested trip that he couldn't provide was to Orlando International Airport. Yeah, and I think you know for the largest retirement in the community in the country, it would be a pretty pretty significant service to provide them a trip to the airport. Um, and, and and get those individuals there. So I think, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, I think every, all of this is positive. And just because it's not going the direction we want it to go right this second doesn't mean it's not going to get there. Right. Great point. Also from The Verge, uh, Uber Eats will use sidewalk robots to make food deliveries down in Miami, Jeff. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, and I guess uh, that's that's something that Brad Templeton has been working on to have these uh, sort of uh, sidewalk robots being able to deliver food again. You know, it's it's um, it's a contribution. 
Yeah, I worked on that law in Florida on personal delivery devices uh, with Starship and, and now and other other groups that have been working on this technology. So it's exciting to see Florida getting, you know, I think everything's kind of just starting to come to Florida first or, or close to first. Uh, and we're, we're starting to see what, you know, what I'm really not, what I'm much more interested in than testing is deployments. Yes. And so, you know, when, you know, Argo AI was talking about deployments in Florida, I think now we're seeing, so I walked to Livery and talk about deployments and Neuro talking about deployments. I think to me, that's the the thing that matters. You can test anywhere. Yeah. You're making yeah. really, you're making really, you're, you're, you're making some significant bets when you start talking about deployment. And I, I guess people can save money too, because I don't, think the robot wants a tip does it (laughs) (laughs) maybe (laughs) and uh finally too simple will reportedly lay off hundreds about half of its workforce uh in the in the coming week that's according to the wall street journal alan yeah um uh, again as as we discussed um uh they really don't didn't say why that that deal fell apart but um but again um um anyway um, what did how many automobile companies existed in the united states in in the t- 10s and 20s in the 1910s and 20s there were hundreds of them there was even mercer motor company with mercer runabout and all that stuff so yeah it's um um yeah um don't know what to say but we have deployments and we do have i, I was very impressed at the at the summit with uh, what the Jacksonville Tran- uh, Transit Authority is doing, and and um, and really doing in ter- in terms of trying to pro- uh, providing mobility and 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 moving the whole mo- uh, personal mobility forward, I I I was very impressed with that whole segment. And uh, as you've pointed out, Jeff, I, I suppose there there is still a uh, a pretty bright near future using this technology in in trucking. Look, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of these trucking companies that are not aligned with OEMs that are kind of like, I feel like a little bit like Tom Hanks from the movie Terminal looking for a country. You know, they're, they're looking for somebody to, to take them on and take them to, to, you know, to make them whole because it's really what they're missing. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, and I think the OEMs are just waiting to kind of bottom fish here. Uh, on, on and and let some of these companies kind of run down their cash before they're willing to come out and acquire them. I, I think too simple, and some of these other companies will will be ultimately acquired by you know the the Navistars and some of the other large trucking companies uh, around the country. Uh, but I think it's just a matter of time for for some of them. And I think any any thoughts about what Tesla is doing? I mean, they started delivering. They didn't talk about when they delivered their first uh, semis. They didn't talk about the, any automated capability or the FSD, as they call it, what's in there. But you have to assume if it's made by well, Tesla, I mean, the computer's even, in there. Right. The computer's there. But I think and I think, you know, they're they're kind of pushing the envelope on this uh, technology uh, when it comes to electrification and automation. But I don't think they're nearly as far ahead on the automation side overall um, as some of these dedicated self-driving car trucking companies like Kodiak or or uh, Embarker, or even Too Simple, um, and definitely not Waymo. So right in Aurora, Aurora, and, Aurora also, and you know, and you know, if you ask me, who's going to be the largest trucking, uh, self-driving trucking company in the next five years? It's going to be Amazon or Walmart. Yeah, 
Uh, and so, so I think, you know, we have to think about the scale of, you know, who's using these trucks uh, to think about where the, the, the self-driving technology is going. I guarantee Amazon, while they're thinking about souks for, for one purpose, is probably going to take a lot of that technology and put it towards trucking for another purpose as well. And so uh, you, you're, it'll be really interesting to watch this play out. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And and we're going to go out at CES and Zooks is going to be there. And um, and they haven't been saying much lately. Of course, they don't have to say much lately because they're doing it. They're doing it for their own business. I mean, you right. look at the amount of money that Amazon spends on getting the things to my front door which I love. It's Christmas every day, Hanukkah every day, man, stuff. So the boxes are arriving. I mean, I just have a ball, but, but, but really just for their own account. And as a, I like to say, with respect to home delivery, my goodness, between, between midnight and 5 AM, nobody's using the roads here in Princeton in New Jersey. Okay. My goodness. Uh, get some of these things and figure out, you know, kind of how to get it to my, front porch maybe a little launcher i mean they know they know where my front porch is they know how far it is they can they can measure wind whatever they can they can they can do what 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 uh, spacex does it'll be really interesting when we start seeing amazon delivery vehicles show up with a passenger inside whose job is to take the package from the door to the uh to the you know from the from the cab right. to the door versus drive the vehicle First, and I think well, that's coming. That that probably is because if you if you still look at if you look at at, at mail delivery here, maybe just in Princeton, what 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 happens is is that the mail truck pulls up, parks, and then and then there's a postman or postwoman that goes around and delivers it to the door. Delivery of milk in Brooklyn in eighteen whatever was done with a horse and a, and a and a and and a cab for the milk and the horse knew to move down the road and wait for the whatever it was trained to be that while the milk person you know put the milk jugs on on the stoops and so on so yeah no all that you can imagine Amazon, they might you know they have folks in there that are that sure. are thinking about that absolutely of course it is it's very much a, a you know oriented to improving their bottom line and but i think it's going to be a fascinating turn when the when right. the company and the insurance company decide the best place for this person is two things to deliver the package and to dial 911 if something goes wrong yeah. like that's that's their job probably Not drive the vehicle don't drive yeah 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 Probably, yeah, and and there, and 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 they they need they need a lot of help in that driving because they should be doing something else as the vehicle is getting there instead of sitting there to make sure that there isn't a pedestrian and so on and so forth. It it is it is an, an enormous co cognitive load on the person to sit there and look at their whatever. And I mean, I, who knows? I'm not, what's I'm not going sure on how they're going to how they're going to solve the last 10 foot issue. I mean, they've tried to get people to give them permission to unlock your front door or unlock your garage and come in, to bring the package in. I don't know how many takers they've had for that. Uh, I don't think a great many, most people probably aren't terribly comfortable with that, but there's has to be an alternate Listen, we're going to have solution. Human, yeah, where are you going to put this? operators for a long, long time in, in just the, that the last 10, 20 feet space. Uh, that is, that is a totally different set of challenges 
that I don't think, you know, we, we're not seeing anybody really addressing at scale yet. And I don't probably don't think that's going to be addressed for decades. So, I, and I think, frankly, the human attendant for that piece is pretty inexpensive on an hourly basis. Uh, and so I, I think what you're going to, you know, but as more and more things, you know, groceries, besides all the other products we get, um, you know, all of this stuff is going towards automation, but that human attendant is going to be there for that last 20 feet for a long time. And it's probably more of a service attendant, a, a, a quality of, of, of the service sure. part of it, as opposed to necessarily the heavy lifting or the or the or, right. or the driving piece. Again, you know, the the the, the amount of, of capabilities that that we have up here uh, allow us to deliver those kinds of things. And as we've seen through the industrial revolution and so on and so forth, where's the automation? Where is the where is the steam engine been used? Where is that is the is the leverage is the leverage this because we're so right. limited here and to use more of this. Right. Well Jeff we, we want to thank you again for, for joining us. Congratulations on all of the achievements uh, and we, we know there's a whole lot more to come. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And let me tell you, uh, you know, one of my favorite things about FAB is the dinners that we host in the evenings. And uh, I was I just had a blast sitting down with uh, Professor Kornhauser and Brad Templeton and Jason Eichenfeld from Luminar and one of the former DOT secretaries from the state of Florida at the back end of our table. And we just, we just had, a, you know, a futuring session, even on our own. It was uh, a lot of fun and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, it's one of my favorite nights of the year. Yeah, it is. And and uh, Jeff, uh, thank you so very much for all that you've done for the state of Florida and for this. I mean, you've, you've led, you know, the creation of these summits. Um, I sort of copied you a little bit in, in the in the Princeton summits that I try to put on up here and certainly uh, learned an enormous amount trying to, uh, move some of this in New Jersey and get New Jersey to, you know, be somewhere in, in this. We, we, we have, we have 9 million people plus here. We, we, we have, you know, uh, 35 million person trips a day that people take in vehicles uh, that could be assisted here. Uh, you know, I don't know what percentage of our, <clears throat> Our Christmas and Hanukkah presents this year are, are going to be delivered by and, and from Amazon or Amazon-like or eBay or Etsy or, you know, the various others and Macy's and everybody else that's, that's doing that. And um, uh, it's, it's um, you've, you've done such a marvelous job. Thank you. It's been, it's been a, I'm going to continue on the ride with you, man. I'm, I'm great. following in your, in your, in your footsteps here. Well, great. I always love seeing you and I can't wait to see you in a few weeks to see you. Yes. Thanks. Be careful, Jeff. You're going to give politicians a good name. <laughs> <laughs> thank you also thank to you. carts the corporation for automated road transportation safety for helping to make this podcast possible Carts is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to safe and high quality mobility for all. You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. Smart speakers can play us too. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening or watching. Have a great rest of the weekend. Please stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Jeff. You got it.